0: Thank you, young worshipers, you know, as they were singing that song and I was just drawn to Christ alone, uh, I thought, you know, such a exciting thing to be a part of the kingdom of God, because God is always working and doing things and we don't always know about it. And then all, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, erupts or is displayed the work of God. And I see that with our kids and and their work and worship. Um just seems like from out of nowhere, all of a sudden we have a, another team, another group of people that can lead us. And also, I was just thinking about Brad's perseverance in building a team um, of worshipers. I don't know if you've noticed, but each Sunday there's something a little different. Brad's been uh, tweaking and problem solving and things, and he's got a team. He's building a team here, and there's been progress made every Sunday. And we appreciate that as well. So God is just always doing things in us individually and corporately, and I just love the surprises that God has for us. We don't know what tomorrow brings, but we know it's good. Well, it's good to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning. Appreciate your presence, and we will be in God's word in Nehemiah chapter four. As we continue our study in this book of Nehemiah, you'll recall in chapter one, Nehemiah is very anxious to receive a report back from his brothers who have gone back to Jerusalem, the motherland. And Nehemiah is in Persia serving King Artaxerxes as his cupbearer. And he wants to know how is the city and how are its people? And unfortunately, he gets a bad report. And his brothers share with him the city is still in ruins and the people are, are downtrodden. And so Nehemiah is grieved in his heart and his spirit and he, and he begins to pray. For an opportunity to go. He wants to do something about it. He wants to go. And so he prays in chapter 1 for an opportunity. And that opportunity comes in chapter 2. And the king sends him with the materials that he needs back to the city to rebuild it and to reestablish it. And then in chapter 3, we saw the work begin. Nehemiah makes his plea to the people. We've got a work to do. There's a God to be worshipped and so they coordinated and co-labored and cooperated and the work of God is being accomplished and layer by layer the wall is going up. The city is beginning to be protected. The people are finding their identity again, their meaning and their purpose as the people of God. Now. We have probably noticed, at least in Ezra and Nehemiah, there's a theme, and I think it's in all of Scripture. When mighty things are being accomplished for God, you can almost always expect something else to pop on the scene. And that something else is opposition. We heard this morning in Sunday school, it has been said that wherever God is at work, Satan pitches his tent. And that's what we find in this chapter, chapter four, we find opposition to God's work, and then we'll look at how they overcame the opposition to God's work. Have you ever faced opposition in your walk, Do you ever faced opposition in your calling to do what it is that God wants you to do, hindrances, bumps in the road, how do we overcome these things that sometimes seem insurmountable? We will find that in this chapter this morning. Well, first we look at the opposition that they faced, verse one to chapter four. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of all the army of Samaria, "What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves?" Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Everybody needs people like that in their lives. You know, we all have people like that in our lives to one degree or another. We have those great special people in our lives that just play that role to build us up. They want to encourage us in our walk with the Lord in their lives. And they they mean everything for our good. And then there are those unfortunate souls that are in our lives that really don't care much for us. And they will belittle us and put us down every chance they get. They don't like us or perhaps they don't like the God that we stand for. They just have a knack for making our lives miserable, have a knack for knowing how to push our buttons, knowing what to say to get us off course. Well, Sanballat and Tobiah and the, and the Arabs and the Ammonites are the enemies of the Jews. And, of course, this has been going on for many, many generations. And it goes all the way back to when God gave his people the land of promise. And God, in his infinite wisdom, decided That the inhabitants of that land of Canaan, the Canaanites and so forth, you've had it long enough, you are immoral people, it's time for you to go and I'm going to do a new work in this land and I'm going to give this to my people and they're going to build it into a place of worship. And ever since that time, there has been chaos, there's been confusion, there has been anger, there has been a battle of balancing for the powers and even to this very day, Israel is struggles to stay afloat, struggles to stay alive. And they have enemies and it. It is basically the same enemies that they have back in the New Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament. Well, Nehemiah wants to establish the city. He wants to reestablish the city so that God can be properly worshipped. He hasn't been worshipped in this way with the temple and the walls and the people who, where they feel safe in over 150 years. So God, so Nehemiah has a heart to reestablish the people of God so that they can once again thrive in their worship, and most importantly, so God can get the glory and the honor that he deserves. But they have these enemies. And these enemies have reasons, of course, we all do. We have reasons for warning things, certain things to happen and things not to happen. There really was a balance of powers in that region, just like there is today. And when one of those nations is so close together and they're interacting, when when one gets a, an upper hand or the edge over the others, it just changes the whole dynamic of the landscape. And we read a lot today about Iran and nuclear powers and how the other nations are nervous about what is this going to do to the balance of the powers and. Well, in this day, the same thing was happening. They didn't want the the Jewish people to rebuild their lives and to once again become a city that flourishes because the powers wouldn't be balanced. At this time, Samaria, even though they were a conquered people under the Persians, they still held sway in that area. And they, um, they benefited from economic prosperity because they were in line for a trade route north, south, east, and west. If Israel, who is also in a strategic place for trade if they rebuild then people will bring their trade there so there are a lot of different reasons why these enemies do not want israel to rebuild their city and to once again be strong they all kind of pose a threat to each other and have to keep an eye on one another so what these enemies decide to do first is basically a verbal onslaught it's just it's it's an attack a verbal attack And as James reminds us in the New Testament, the tongue is a powerful, powerful instrument. It speaks things. And we have ears to hear things. And so when things come across our our minds, we have to weigh them and evaluate them and ask ourselves, is this true? Is this a possibility? And so they began to say as many discouraging things as they possibly can to try to get in their heads internally So that the people will slow this, this progress down so that they won't be reestablished. They're basically calling them. You guys are a bunch of wimps. You don't know what you're doing. You're not supposed to be builders. You're, you're, You're goldsmiths, you're perfumers, and you're trying to build a wall to protect your city. You're not going to be able to sleep at night. You're not going to be any safer than you were before the wall was here because you don't even know how to build. It's like Pete and repeat. And then Tobiah adds to that. Yeah. And if a fox lands on top of your wall, it's going to fall down. I mean, that's that. That's the the kind of confidence that they are portraying in these people. The work that you're trying to accomplish is not going to happen. You don't have what it takes. As a matter of fact, you are pretty much just making fools out of yourselves by even trying. So, the conclusion or would would be to pack it up, just stop, just stay there like you were before. Don't try to unsettle things like this. Sam Ballard even says, what are you going to do, make sacrifices? And I think it was verse two. The idea is you're going to have to just keep making these sacrifices to God until you find his honor. So he builds the wall for you because you can't do it. So keep making your sacrifices. It's a lost cause. Even if you get it up, it will come crumbling down. So we might call this today. They're really trying to get in their head. Trying to get into their heads so that they will second guess themselves and not proceed with this work. Now, does any of this sound familiar? If we just launch ourselves, take ourselves out of this city in Nehemiah's day and put the people of God in today's world, say you and I, does any of this sound familiar at all? Have we ever felt attacked? Do we face opposition in the work that God wants us to do? Absolutely. And the reason that I can read this and it sounds familiar to me, these same kind of ideas and thoughts and this discouragement is because it comes from the father of lies. See, all these battles, ultimately, Scripture tells us, yes, it happens on a material level, man to man, but it's a spiritual battle. And so the ammunition, a lot of times the ammunition that evil gets, not only from our own hearts, but pulls from the arsenal that Satan has. Satan's a pro with this kind of stuff. So what do we often find when we are in the midst of or think God wants us to do a work for him? We often find ourselves thinking these thoughts or hearing these voices, whether from real people or just in our own minds, from the spiritual attack. We might hear, you can't do that. Who do you think you are? Maybe we're contemplating becoming a Christian. We know that we're not right with God and we've been struggling with it, wrestling it. You're going to hear the kind of reason, the rationale, the arguments presented. Who do you think you are? Entertaining the idea of giving your life to Christ and becoming one of those Christians. You know you can't do that. You can't be that holy, that righteous. You can't You'll just be a hypocrite. You can't be that happy and joyful. You know who you are and it's not possible. You're just going to make a fool out of yourself. Don't even try. You'll just fail. You don't have what it takes. And what do we do when perhaps we think God is calling us to something? It's a Sunday school teacher. The church needs a Sunday school teacher. And we might be entertaining the idea, maybe I can serve in that way. What almost always happens when we begin to want to serve God in an area and do something right? Sunday school teacher. You can't do that. You'll get in class and here's what's going to happen. They're going to ask you something and you don't know the answer. Fail. They'll be snickering at you and laughing behind your back as soon as you leave the classroom. You don't have what it takes. You can't serve God like that. Bible study leader, prayer leader. Nobody's going to come and listen to what you have to say. Speaker at a retreat or something. Don't take that invitation. You can't do it. You'll fumble. And what you try to build will just crumble down. Does any of that sound familiar? I know it does for me. And. The pastorate and any other ministry, Satan is there to tell us what we can't do. And he wants to get in our heads. And it's a powerful thing to do because if we start to believe lies for the truth, here's how it works with human nature. We act and we behave, we plan and we do based on what we believe is true. So if we believe these things are true, then we're not going to do that. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. He wants to distract us so that our focus is no longer on God and building God's kingdom, which is why we're here. Now it's all maybe just being safe for avoiding making a fool out of ourselves, avoiding failures, keeping the peace. It's a tactic of the enemy. If it doesn't work internally. Then there is a second tactic that the enemy also has, and that is fear, scare tactics. If the verbal onslaught doesn't work and he can't get in our heads and we continue to press on, then there's, I guess, maybe plan number two, one that's going to threaten them. If they're not scared internally, then externally I'm going to intimidate them and threaten them. Verse seven. But when Samballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And then verse 11 goes on to say, they say, we're going to attack you just whenever you're not even going to see it coming. There's no way you're going to know about it. When you least expect it, we're going to be right there and we're just going to wipe you out. We're going to stop you in your tracks. Which is basically a form of terrorism, because when somebody says, I'm going to get you, but you just never know when, what does that cause us to do? We find ourselves trying to defend ourselves against the enemy that's not even visible at the moment. There's no. Particular battlefield, we can't just step out with a sword and fight and defeat our enemy because they're hiding and they're only going to come out on their terms. Everything is their terms. So it's hard to defend yourself against something like that. And it is intimidating. You're looking over your shoulder. You're wondering, will it be tonight? Did I just hear something? Is that the army? Was that the clashing of a sword I heard? Was that a horse? And so you're just constantly wondering, when will this happen? The enemy loves fear. Satan operates and feeds on human fear. One of the most popular commandments in Scripture, and it's surprising because you think it should be love and so forth, but one of the things that God constantly says, practically more than anything else, is do not fear. Do not fear. You start in Genesis, you end in Revelation. Here's what God's telling his people. Every generation, those that have come and and they're gone and those that will come. Do not fear. Fear not. I'm with you. I got this. And he constantly tries to soothe our hearts and our minds because we're bombarded by these kind of thoughts. Where we think everything is at risk. And, And he loves to paint The enemy loves to paint this this picture of all the bad that can happen to us and just let our minds run off. Well, what if this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens? Yeah. And what that does is it blots out all of the blessings that God's already pouring upon us, all the protection, all the safety, all the provisions. The things that he's doing in our lives, if we can only fix on the bad that is happening or might happen. All of a sudden we become prophets like we know this. We, we begin to predict the future where we act like we can because we just know this is going to happen and it's bad and it, and it doesn't always happen. God is God is God in the midst of our fears. But the enemy likes to do that because he knows that we will act based on what we think is true. And that's why it's so important, particularly the New Testament challenges us. To know the truth. And we, we talk about knowing the truth all the time. But what if we're building our lives on a lie or part of our lives on a lie? What if we really believe something's going to happen or this this is going to play out or this is the way life works? And that's not true. Well, then we find ourselves acting or reacting according to something that's not going to happen or something isn't true. That's why we want to build on the rock. God's word is true. It is absolutely reliable and dependable. We don't know about the fads and all this advice from philosophers and talk shows and even doctors and even science. I mean, we're discovering new things and some things are reliable and some things aren't. But God's word is always reliable. He doesn't change his mind. So we want to build our lives on the rock. Is what we are standing on, the rock of God. Biblical truth. Well, that's the opposition. That has taken place. That's what they're facing. And this is a huge test. This is real stuff. Just like it is real in our own lives. And by the way, we are in the midst of um, the age of the church, or at least not that it hasn't seen persecution it's always seen persecution but the church has seen more persecution in our day than ever and even in our friendly christian friendly culture it's no longer as christian friendly so we are literally watching the enemy have his way and we will face more and more opposition the enemy wants to show us the bad things that can happen. So it's basically a challenge to the Israelites. Don't keep making progress. Look, your lives are in danger. Go back to like it was where at least you can live in peace. You don't have to be looking over your shoulder. Don't try to do great things for God. It's too dangerous. Just stay down here under the fly, under the radar, under the status quo. And that's the way you should do life. Otherwise, I'm going to get you. (laughs) That's the challenge. Or at least the temptation from the enemy. So they're under tremendous attack. The question is, what will they do with this time of testing? How do they respond? How will they handle it? How do we handle opposition that comes our way? Well, let's see what Nehemiah does. First, he responds with prayer in verses 4 and 5. Here, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to Work so here's the opposition, here's the attack, the verbal onslaught, and then the fear. We're going to line our army up, and we're just going to attack you when you least expect it. What do you do when the opposition comes like that? Nehemiah prays. First thing he does, we'll see this throughout this book. He is constantly taking things to God. This is his response to the hardships of life. It's just almost his instinct to express himself to God. Look what's going on, Lord we we need you here you're the king of kings and he does this because he realizes that there's a god to go to but also it isn't just about israel it's not just about nehemiah and the people what they're doing is about god it's a reflection of god and so essence th- this this fight is god's fight as well and so he is calling upon the god that takes a personal Interest, interest in them. The enemy wants him to feel alone, completely cut off. You don't have any other nation to turn to. If we fight you, if we line our army up, you got nowhere to go. It's just you. You're weak. You're vulnerable. You've got nothing. And the the, the circumstances and these threats want to. Basically create a cloud of confusion over God's people so that they forget God even exists, so that they they can't see him and his work any longer. And so, in essence, they're being called or challenged to live by sight and not by faith, to be focused on the here and now and strictly the circumstances on earth instead of what's happening in heaven. Same kind of things that we face Today. And we as believers are to rise above or to get a little higher so that we can see over the artwork of this world as it is and see that there's this incredible amount of spiritual activity that's taking place in the heavens. And that the world and the enemy does not get the final say, but God does. And so prayer enables Nehemiah to see this and to know this truth about God. Another example of believing lies if. Like believing, well, God's not going to help you. He's not there for you in your hardest time. You are on your own. You know, when we feel like we're on our own, we immediately just realize I can't carry this burden. I quit. I give up. But when you realize that God is with you and God is for you, which is the reality that we live in, then we can continue to to hope and to press on. The truth is, it is too much. What they're trying to do is too much for that for those limited amount of families Moving all those rocks and making all these sacrifices and trying to scratch out a living while you're building the wall. It is humanly too much. And that is a fact. And if you just look at that fact, then what are you going to do? You'll be overwhelmed and quit. But if you also realize that God is in this, God is helping them build the wall, it's a game changer. And that gives them reason to press on. So Nehemiah doesn't look at the circumstances alone because the circumstances aren't God. God is over circumstances. He's sovereign over these things. So he resists the temptation to quit. And he and he says, so we build. So we built the ball. I love that answer because you have all this opposition. And so what does Nehemiah do? Well, I prayed and we built. We built the wall. Even though that they were very, very. Threatened. So his reality is that God is in a special relationship with them. God will see this through. It's not just their wall. It's God's wall. It's not just his people. It's God's people. It's it's God's city. That's our hope for our church today. It's not just it's just not what we do to serve. It doesn't depend on how well we do. We want to strive to do our best. Always. It's God's church. Christ is the head. That's our hope. It doesn't if it were if it's dependent upon the pastors, the leaders, the elders or the teachers and so forth. Then if we look at those circumstances and those realities, we could be pretty discouraged. But when you realize that what is happening here is a work of the God of gods, the only true God, it's a game changer. And and it just encourages us and inspires us that God is with us and we can do this. We can do the Christian life and we can manifest The presence of Christ to this world. It's a powerful reality. Isaiah 63, nine reminds us of the compassion of God and how God just he knows what what's going on in our lives. He feels our pain, so to speak. Takes us back to the Israelite wanderings, he says in all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and mercy. He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. See, if we, if, if we keep our eyes fixed on. God for who he really is, that's our reality. If, if we can just stay focused on him and not the things of this world, they're secondary, not primary. God has got to be primary. Then we can. Do the Christian life. Then we can step up to the plate and serve as God calls us to serve. Then we can do the impossible. And that is be a thriving church in the midst of a culture that is going downhill. Be a moral people in the midst of an immoral culture. Be a people that care about holiness and justice in the midst of a culture that can't even define what it is. These things are possible for the people of God with the presence of God. God is strong and powerful. I always love the words of Pastor Dick Woodward, where he said, we can't, but he can. And he's with us. One of the messages of the Old Testament. So Nehemiah looks to God for mercy. He prays. But in his prayer is not just God uh, asking for God's mercy. It's also a petition for God's justice. Do not cover their guilt. This is what he's talking to God about when he thinks about his enemies. He's saying, God, don't cover the guilt. And all this harm that they want to come on us, may it come on their own heads. May they suffer from the very things that they are wishing us to suffer from. This is called an imprecatory prayer. Uh, Imprecatory prayers, it's when in the prayer life, people... Uh, actually call for God's justice or call for God's wrath. We find this, and you know, you read it in Scripture, and it makes you a little uncomfortable sometimes, the things that God's people ask God to do. Here's a great one, Psalm 109. It's a prayer of David, a man after God's own heart. Be not silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. So there's the problem. There's the opposition. And so what does David pray? Verse 8. May his days be few. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food from afar and... And from the ruins that they inhabit, may the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruit of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. He loves to curse. Let curses come upon him. He didn't delight in the blessing. May it be far from him. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord of those who speak evil in my life. Help me, O God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Verse 29, may my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. Have you ever prayed an imprecatory prayer? Don't raise your hand. Might make me nervous. I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, where's the turn the other cheek and love your neighbor and forgive and mercy and grace? Where is all that? Is it is that legal? Can Christians do that? Can we pray for God's wrath to come? Can we pray for God's justice to be executed on those that wish evil? Well, scholars don't agree on the answer to that question. They're all over the place with it because it's tough. What do you do with it? And some say, well, yeah, they're in the Bible, but God doesn't approve of them. It's just it's just man speaking his mind. Others say they shouldn't be in Scripture and. Uh. Some say it's not really prayer, it's it's prophecy and it's going to happen. It's just kind of God telling people what's going to happen. But um, in the New Testament, we find imprecatory prayers after Christ has come and, and seated at the right hand of the Father. One of the, so, so are they for today? Well, we have them in the New Testament. People prayed them. The Apostle Paul says to Elemas, the uh, the magician in Acts 13, um, he says, Paul looks at him intently. Of course, elimus is up to no good. He's trying to turn the holiness of God into some kind of magical experience, true spiritual transformation to magical. Paul looks at him, says Paul's filled with the Holy Spirit. When he says this, he looks at him intently. You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. That was a, a precatory prayer that happened to be answered in the split second that he prayed it. Talk about the fear of God. But here's the thing, it's it's not when you read these prayers, here's what you'll find. They're they're not vindictive. It's not you try to get me and I'm going to get you. What it's really about is the glory of God. Nehemiah said that they they're provoking God to anger. So it's the bigger picture of you're harming God's work. You're 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 hurting God's name. You're you're defaming the glory of God. You're you're veiling it because you wish evil. God takes that personal and God is a God of justice. And I'm asking God to have justice for his own sake, for his own glory, for his own name. So that's really the context of these prayers. Of course, if somebody had a change of heart and truly repented, God would forgive. But if they're bent on evil, then this is what they people may he happens to take this kind of stuff personally. He takes his glory personal. He takes what happens to us very personal. We're his children. He's our heavenly father. He sees when we go out and try to live life for him. He knows the sacrifices we make. He knows what we expose ourselves to. He cares about it. He cares about what people have to say about it and what people are planning. So that's what they're calling attention to. The people that really are mocking God. So Nehemiah's first response to this opposition is is prayer. And then his second response is perseverance. Verse six again, after the prayer, immediately he says, so we built the wall. What's he saying? Hey, guys, let's get back to work. There's work to be done. So let's get to work. But they're they're forming an army. Get back to work. But didn't you hear what they said? We can't do this. We're going to be outnumbered. It'll just fall down. We're not really safe. Pick up the tools and get back to work. God's work is to pray, but God's work is also to get back to work. Yes, we're vulnerable. We can't control everything. But what God has called us to is to build this wall. So let's get back to work. It's perseverance. So Let's not sit around and feel sorry for ourselves or sit around and wait for the next attack. Let's be busy doing the work of the Lord. Give what you have to God. So we built the wall, he says, verse six, the people had a mind to work. They regrouped. They persevered. They refocused. They rebuilt. And to have a mind for work, what that means is they were in it with their whole hearts. If you really want to get something done, we we know this is true. If you really want to get something done in life, we have to go at it with our whole heart. That's the best possibility we have. Have you ever done something half-heartedly? Or do, do you work with people that are in it just kind of halfway? What, what do they do all the time? Eh. I don't want to be here. They whine and complain. I could be out doing this and I could do be doing this, but I'm stuck here doing that. It's a half heartedness. It's hard to get anything done. You're not willing to make the sacrifices, but when you're in it with a whole heart, when you have a mind to it, that means I really want this done. And I'm going to jump in with both feet and do everything within my power to accomplish this. That's that's wholeheartedness. Galatians 6, 9, the Apostle Paul says, let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season. We will reap if we do not give up. That's perseverance. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of God. Perseverance in the household of God. Don't give up. So Nehemiah is building the house of God. They're persevering and they are making Progress. It's okay to be tired. It's okay to know that there are threats out there. But when God calls us to something, it's not good to quit. It's not good to quit if we haven't been released. Perseverance. What does perseverance look like for us? Perhaps we're in the midst of opposition or some kind of struggle. Perhaps we're tired and we're entertaining the idea of quitting. Because we've lost focus of God and it's become more about us than God. Perseverance is a part of the Christian life. It's an attribute. It's a godly attribute. It's something we can't do the Christian life without. We can't live for the moment. It's that longevity. Perseverance. It's getting back. I remember uh, being counsel. I remember Grammy giving counsel to someone who was. Very, very discouraged and just had a hard time waking up in the morning and even wanting to face the light. What do you tell somebody like that? What, what do you do when you just don't feel like doing anything? And her advice was you get up and you do the next best thing. You just do the next right thing that you know you have to do. What's that? It's perseverance. Even when you don't feel like it. Because it's right and it's good, it counts. It counts. So you just do the next right thing. Sooner or later, things will fall back into place. So the next, the the remainder of this passage is kind of lengthy. I'm going to read it hit or miss so we can conclude and see what perseverance looked like for Nehemiah and the Israelites. So the uh, the enemies, they continue kind of paraphrasing. They were very, very angry. They continue to plot uh, verse eight. They're going to cause confusion. They're going to raise an army. Um, even Judah in verse 10 begins to grow weary. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. Verse 10, there's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall, the enemies see this, they, they, they sense blood, they want to go in for the kill, they're getting discouraged. Nehemiah calls all the people he can to muster up, verse 12, return to us. Look, you're used to sleeping outside the city, sleep inside the city, help us protect the city. So what does he do? Verse 13, he stations people by their clans and he gives them weapons. So in order to persevere and have the work continue, you got a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And in the most vulnerable places of the wall, he sets the strongest presence of military might. And he says, don't be afraid of them. Verse 14. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that the God had frustrated their plan We all return to the wall, each to his work. So there's something else that happened that he doesn't tell us about. But the enemy realizes that their plans are fruitless and futile. God keeps doing something or showing up. And you get the idea that they meant to attack this weak place. And lo and behold, there's God's army. And then they were going to attack over here. And there's God's people. Everything they tried to do could not be done. So verse 16, they worked in construction half of the servants works construction half held spears shields bows coats of mail they were building the wall carrying the burdens laboring with weapons in their hands and then they had a system where if one was attacked they blow the trumpet and the rest of the group would come and help them so it was a network it was a strategy for them to be able to persevere to do whatever it takes in verse 20, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So they labored. Verse 23, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So there they are. That is grit. That's Perseverance. They're already making sacrifices. They're already beyond their means. And yet they they bring on even more. So we see that one way to handle this opposition opposition is you keep doing what God's called you to do. The enemy wants us to stop. He wants us. He wants to hinder us from using our gifts, from serving the body. He wants to hinder us from being a part that builds it up. Into a glorious witness of Christ. The enemy wants to stop that. God wants us, even in the midst of opposition, just keep doing the right thing. It counts. It works. It's building. It's really happening. The kingdom of God is coming on earth. You're a part of it, even when you don't feel like it. Even if you can't see how it's happening or it's all going to fall into place. Keep doing what I've called you to. That is perseverance. So prayer and work, we need them both. Not just the work, because that's kind of pride. I can do this. I don't need to trust God and not just prayer, because that's presumption. I don't need to do anything. God will do do it all for me. It's prayer and work. Stan Ever says we must pray because we accomplish nothing without God's power. But at the same, same time, we're to labor for God as if everything depended on our Efforts. So they picked up the sword and they're willing to defend themselves and God blessed it as they trust, trusted in God. So here's Nehemiah trying to reestablish God in the city as the pri- priority and It's working. People are making tremendous sacrifices and it's at the cost of their sacrifices that the wall is being built. Progress comes through pain. If you want to get fit. What happens? Progress comes through pain. Got to exercise. Got to stretch. Got to say no to certain things. I like what Mark Driscoll says about this idea that we can make progress without any effort. We live in a world that wants us to believe this is not true. The great lie is That is continually told is that there can be progress with no pain. You can have an easy, carefree life. You can make money without working. You can be married without conflict. You can raise children without effort. You can worship God without sacrifice. It's a lie. It's the same lie that Satan told Jesus. He came to Jesus. He said, Jesus, no need to suffer. No need to die. No need to go to the cross. There's a shortcut to progress that requires no pain. All you got to do is worship me. Satan continually offers himself as the false god of comfort, and it only leads to death. It does not lead to worship of God. Don't tap out. Don't tap out and quit. And here's here's the crux as we conclude. The decisions that the people under Nehemiah's leadership are making that day on a daily basis can I do this another day? Do I have any more to give? They're making the dis- decisions for the people of God in the future. If they tap out and quit, the next generations don't. They don't have a city to worship God in. Because this generation gave up in the task that God gave. them. You see what we do today, the way we worship God today in this service, the, the way we make our sacrifices with our lives, the way we give has an impact on how God will be worshipped in this church ten years from now. If we give up one by one, if we make the soft choices, if we're not willing to to make the sacrifices and sometimes put our reputation, our money on the line, maybe even our lives, if that's what God's calling us to and we fail to do it, we're not building the foundation that He desires. And then there's nothing there or very little there for the next generations to stand upon. This is our fight. Nobody else can fight it for us. Those that went before us have fought so that we can be where we are today, so that we have this place of worship, so that we can try and strive to be this community of Christ out here in the middle of nowhere. We got to keep fighting that battle. God has not released us no matter what we see with our eyes, we live by faith. We look over the discouragement, we look over the opposition. We look through those that maybe people are falling to the left and falling to the right and giving up. That's not our prerogative. We pray and we persevere and labor with a whole heart. Why? So God gets the glory that he deserves. That is why we're here. That's what we want to accomplish. That is why he saved us. And that is why by God's grace or what by God's grace we shall accomplish with our breath and with our life. So, let's rally and worship the Lord as he deserves to be worshipped. May God bless the preaching of his word.